Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of the Black Man's Heart Podcast. I am your host, Barry Graves. And today we have a special, special episode. I know I say that all the time. And you guys are probably like sick of me being like, dude, we got a special podcast today. But today is a very special podcast. I'm just going to, before I introduce this person, I'm just going to let you know, I first met her back in 2008, 2007, 2008. And she was putting, she was, she was teaching a photography class at a middle school in East Oakland. And when I say East Oakland, I'm talking about deep, deep East Oakland, like deep East Oakland to where it was like, damn, I got to go over here for the, for the class. And the class was beautiful. I mean, we talked about photography. You would have thought it was a college course, y'all, but the kids were so warm, so receptive to what she was putting down to, to, to her style of teaching that it made it like, it, it was like a, it was like summer camp. It was a fun escape. Even though it was in a, one of the roughest neighborhoods in East Oakland, you couldn't tell us that we weren't in a, in a, in another world, the way that we were capturing things on, on film and, 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 and communicating with each other. It was a beautiful exchange. And it let me know that no matter where we are in the world, we're always, we're always in a position to make the best out of something. So without further ado, this woman right here is an Oakland based photographer Director of photography. I mean, and when I say director of photography, she's who you want behind the camera to capture something. She's 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 the lens behind the documentary premiering March 18, 2023, Clarissa's Battle, the, the which is also in the Human Rights Watch Film Festival. A month she 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 specializes in months-long time-lapse projects. So, for example, when we see these uh, uh, time lapses where something is taking place over days, but it's only seconds to us. This is what she does. She's a graduate B.A.S. Spellman. Come on. Masters in, in U from USC film school. Welcome to the show. And she's also a dope mother. Don't listen. She brought her da <laughs> daughters to class every day. And these girls are the funniest most down to earth individuals I've ever seen. They held their own. <laughs> They're probably like elementary school holding their own with middle school kids. Like she's, she's the dopest and she's down to earth. She's always in the community. Welcome to the Black Man's Heart Podcast, CB Smith Doll. What's up, CB? Hey, Barry. It's good to, good, good to see you. I'm putting air quotes. Good to see you. Um, thank you for that amazing, amazing intro. And I just want to say before we get into it, um, you know, it's a thing I post uh, semi-regularly on my Facebook page just as my act of, um, of art and, um, and political commentary. Black men, we love you. We love you. You are loved and you are lovable. And never forget that. Oh, man. Can, can we, can we, we, okay. So I had this whole thing where I wanted to start with your, your origins and everything like that. But now that you bring that up, there's no way that we can't just go into that a little bit. Can you tell us what that's about? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, I think uh, Angela Davis 
had this really amazing quote that I'm going to totally mangle, but she basically says, you know, being a black male slave and a black female slave, neither one is better or worse. They're just different. And I think that any chance that black men have to celebrate black women, they should take it. And any chance that black women have to celebrate black men, they should take it. Um, and so that's where that comes from. And, and just to, to expand it a little bit, I want to be clear um, that I mean in, in all ranges of gender expression, right? right? So, you know, black queer men, black cis women, all the ranges, um, non-binary folks, like let's celebrate each other um, in our beauty, our strength, our wit, and, um, and just love. Facts, facts, and thank you for that. That and that that's so refreshing to hear um, from from a woman, from a black woman, a biracial woman, as 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 you um, wrote on your or as you have stated in your bio, it, it's it's something that it's something that we as men don't hear enough, um, mm -hmm. especially nowadays. Um, we were just talking about in the podcast that I recorded earlier that. Um, um, a lot of times we as men are told to man up, to suck it up, to, to, you know, not cry, things like that. So receiving those sentiments of affection, uh, of love, of, of respect, those are things that we sometimes have to pay for, like literally pay for mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or, or, um, in, in some kind of way we have to work for, like really hard to work for. And it's a minimum at that. So thank you for that. That that is very much needed. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, yeah. <laughs> CB, CB, where where? First of all, can you do you mind telling us? Because I never even asked you, what does CB stand for? Uh, well, I don't generally tell the public what CB stands for. Um, oh, okay, okay. I will say this. So so a lot of folks hit a certain age, right? Somewhere between like 18 and 25. And they start questioning the roots of their names. A lot of black folks specifically, right? right. And I went to a HBCU. I went to Spelman College. I, I should mention my mother is, or was, she recently passed. But my mother was- I'm sorry to um, hear that. African-American with some Native American and, and probably some white in there too, although we never knew any white family members on that side. Um, and, and my dad uh, is white American. And so my maternal culture, the culture I grew up within is black culture. So when I went to Spelman and I started thinking about sort of what's in a name and, um, and learning more about African traditions around naming, some of my classmates took African names, right? They changed mm -hmm. to that. What I took was an African tradition and sort of combined it with an African-American tradition. So it's very common, especially in Southern Africa, for children um, to have a name that their parent or their grandparent might call them or might whisper in their ear and to have a community name, to have a different name. Right. Um, that's presented in the community. And and that should sound familiar to most of us as Black folk. Like, you know, Pookie. Junebug. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I was, What's your I was government Junebug. name? That sort of thing. Oh, you are Junebug. That's precious. Yeah. <laughs> I, was I love that. I love know, that. And so I took that, I took that tradition of like community name and family name um, and sort of 
took on the name of CB, much like CJ Walker or BB King, right? right? So the initials are my community name. They are my public facing name. If you are someone who knows me well, who has been to my house, it's not, you know, my family name is not hidden. Um, and there are certainly people who have known me for decades who knew my family name before I changed my name, right? So mm -hmm. I don't, I, I don't mind people calling me by that name, but it is a certain intimacy that in a way you kind of have to, to earn. Um, right. And not everybody, not everybody is in that inner circle and that's okay, right? We move through lots of spaces, but CB is my community name. It's my professional name for my career. That's pretty dope. That's, that's like a form of ownership. That, that's, that's pretty cool because, because it's, it's also like access to your energy a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, your, your DNA, like, like it's, a, it's someone accessing who you really are or who you, um, who, who the real, not, not saying a real you versus the, the public persona, but kind of like who has access to your, your dynamic, your, your, your energy, your, your, your real self, your core kind of, it, it, it's, it's really dope. That's like, you don't, if you don't have the key, you can't come in this house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's funny to hear you say that because I'm, I'm, there is a gender element to it too, right? In the sense that when I started in the film business, it was extremely rare for women to get the jobs that I was going after. Um, you know, whether that was working my way up as, as, as a grip and an electric or and a gaffer and a best boy, <laughs> obviously, mm. right? Very rare for women to get hired as best boys at that time. Yeah, you um, never saw or, best girls or best women. You never saw that. No, it was always no, best no, boy. No. No. And in fact, one film, which I don't even think ever came out, but there was a feature I worked on as Best Boy Electric. And I was like, you know what? I want to be credited as Best Boy because I think it's hilarious. But but <laughs> I will say being a woman in spaces that men had become accustomed to owning exclusively, right? Mm. The only men who ever had a problem with my name being CB were men who were trying to hit on me. And so mm. it became a really fascinating sort of, I like that metaphor that you used of like, you know, okay, like we can hang out on the front stoop, but you're not coming in my house, right? right. And it, it, it became a kind of useful tool because if, if, if somebody really had a problem with my name being CB and that can't be your real name and why won't you tell me your real name? There was a power dynamic there that showed up in other places too which was sort of fascinating. Like, do you trust a woman um, to have her own best interests at heart, basically? Right. To be her own gatekeeper, her own, uh, uh, her own, not even boss, but just to be responsible for herself in, in this yeah. way that you, if you haven't earned it, you're not going to get it. And if you want it, if you, if you, if you think you're, you're entitled to it, you're definitely not going to get it kind of thing. Like that's dope as shit. I, I think I'm going to put my daughter up on that. I mean, be like, yo, <laughs> think of some initials that you like. And then we're going to, that's what you're going to tell people. Your name is think of an initial or we'll give you some, a nickname because that, that it's true. Men and women, both. Um, sometimes we have this thing where 
We can't, we feel like we can't control who has access to us. That's yeah. pretty deep. Yeah, 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 yeah. CB, what, where, where did you grow up at? <laughs> where are you from? So I grew up in a lot of places during my childhood. My mother moved every, pretty much every two years um, within the United States. And then my father moved pretty much every two years, mostly overseas. Um, and my parents separated when I was four and then divorced when I was eight. So um, I feel very fortunate to have had those experiences. I've, I, you know, I went to eighth and ninth grade on the Navajo reservation. I went to, um, wow. uh, uh, what was that? That would have been probably third grade um, for a semester of third grade in Haiti. Um, I what? went to, to like a summer program for high schoolers outside of London and Sussex. Like I, I had all these really amazing experiences. Um, and I learned very quickly um, you know, what people call now code switching, right? Like how to make other people comfortable, even when I didn't fit in, even when I was different from them. Um, mm -hmm. And, and also how to be comfortable in different environments, how to how to be comfortable when I was the only whatever, you know, the only black person or the only person with some indig indigenous heritage, um, or the only person um, who spoke English, right? right? All of those things were things that I learned growing up in addition to, you know, your reading, your writing, your arithmetic kind of stuff. Um, but, but yeah, it's a strange existence because in particular, I live in Oakland now and many folks in Oakland are second, third, fourth generation. My children are actually third generation Oaklanders. Um, and so to be in a place where people are like, oh, you know, you're not from here. You moved here. You weren't born. Here. <laughs> um, uh, even though I've been here almost 20 years, I, I respect that. It's fine. It's totally you can't fine. even tell. But, but um, I, you know, I, I, I try to be humble and I try to be respectful to the roots that surround me. Right. But but at the same time, I would just say um, it's been interesting sitting in one place for a long time after not having done that most of my life. It's been uh, a new experience and certainly informs my filmmaking to be able to say like, oh, that corner store, I have over, you know, 15 years of memories at that corner store. And right. that's not something I had growing up. I sort of met people and then left over yeah. and over and over again. It, it's, I, I moved around a lot also. And mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's helpful in a way, like, you know, how to make friends or, you know, how to relate to other people. Um, mm -hmm. when, when you get to be a certain age or come to a certain point in life. Um, but then it's also like, damn, I wish I would have been able to grow up in one house and know what that was like to, to yeah. be known only in that one See, No, everybody knows me and, and knows my family kind of thing. But in, yeah. in, in, and in the Bay, it's, it's depending on where you are, if you're there long enough, it is kind of like that. It's, it's like yeah. at least on your block. Yeah. No, and you, you know, there is a comfort in that because you, you have a reputation that precedes and follows any individual moment. And so if somebody tries to say something like, you know, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, 
uh, Sam lies all the time, right? Mm -hmm. But people know Sam for their whole life and are literally like, that doesn't sound like Sam, right? Right. People can't get away with just kind of making up stories about you. Um, I should say, you know, and it's again, a very sort of black thing, but just to give some context. So my mom's peoples (laughs) are from um, a black community that basically lived in South West Michigan and commuted back and forth to Chicago um, from the 20s through the 60s. My mom actually went to high school on the south side of Chicago. Um, my dad's people, um, my grandmother was born in San Francisco in 1908. She would have said, oh, ought. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but uh, she was born in San Francisco in 1908. Um, her family actually was in San Francisco during the earthquake in 1906 um, and basically made their front yard a soup kitchen. Um, and which was an incredibly traumatic experience for them. Um, uh, my grandmother's father actually was one of the first elevator operators in San Francisco and, and had a job as a teenager collecting rents in, um, uh, Barbary coast. Um, so he's just a very interesting fellow. Um, and, and my dad was born in Palo Alto um, and spent many of his formative years in Carmel. So Damn. again, very, very different cultural backgrounds, but both of them very rooted in place, in traditions of the place. I have very vivid memories as a kid of my dad making his own granola because you couldn't buy it at the store. <laughs> <laughs> it just was not something that was available outside of California. And so he would make it at home and make trail mix to like take on hikes that we went on and you know my grandmother would send me letters about um you know oh you should have seen the moon today and the sky and you know just very northern california folks and so that's a huge part of who i am as well as you know my mom being the first person in the family to go to college and telling me stories about carrying a razor blade in between her fingers as she walked home from school at night. And, you know, like, Mm. um, yeah, those, those, I think a lot of times when people ask, you know, like, where are you from? What they're really asking are, who are your people? Right. What, Mm. what are the stories and the traditions and the experiences, the lived experiences that inform how you see the world? So those are my people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and because a lot of times, and thank you for that. Um, damn, that that was before social media. So your your family got around. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> what, a lot of times um, coming up around middle school to high school, um, it gives us a lot more um, uh, learned experiences that that contribute to who we'll become later in life, or at least some mm-hmm. of the the tools that will carry with this. Um, so around high school, were you in other countries or were you in the United States, like in the mainland? Uh, so as I mentioned, middle school, um, I went to eighth grade at Sehotso Middle School and ninth grade at Window Rock High School. Both of those, um, you know, depending on, on uh who you talk to, right, in the Navajo Nation or um, Diné territory, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that was an interesting experience. My 
I'm named after um, one of my grandmothers who was half Cherokee and half black um, and whose family evaded the Trail of Tears, which there, there's actually more than one of them, um, but they hid in the mountains in Tennessee and were able to evade um, the forced migration. And so wow. um, to be on the reservation, to be with folks who, <laughs> you know, watching my mother sort of realize, uh, oh, and that grandmother, my mother was raised by two of her grandmothers and one of them was that grandmother, Grandma Da. But um, watching my mother sort of figure out different traditions that she had thought of as just, this is what my family does, were actually Native American traditions, right? So um, while I was there, we were, one of the classes we were required to take was um, in traditional farming, which is kind of amazing that we were required to take that. But, you know, the class talked about um, planting uh, uh uh, peas and beans and corn together um, as a technique. And literally my mother had been taught that technique by her grandmother as well. Um, wow. And so it was a very interesting experience connecting some of those dots and, and, and connecting with that culture. At the time that I was there, um, I would say, gosh, there's, there were a couple of things. Um, so the first thing is, um, because the public schools were primarily taught in English, it created um, a, a kind of a caste system where uh, students who were white and students who had a white parent um, came into kindergarten already speaking English. And so they were placed in one set of curriculum. Students who only spoke Diné were basically had to take a year to learn English. And so they were tracked from the moment they entered school, right? Mm. Um, and so that was a real wake-up call for me about just injustice and, and the way that, um, you know, what we now called st call structural racism can function, right. Right? right? And be kind of baked into systems. Um, but the other thing that was really interesting was that, you know, there was a good probably... 15 or 20% of the kids who really were interested in their heritage, were trying to learn about their heritage at the, at the middle school and high school level, right? Who, who sort of thought, you know, being Dine is cool and knowing my culture and my language and, my, and the old ways um, is cool. The rest of the kids in the school were really, really into, strangely enough, um, like big hair bands and heavy metal. So, mm. so everybody was trying to like, you know, emulate Motley Crue and, and that was very bizarre for me and very confusing. Um, yeah. You know, my mother had been very adamant about like, you know, playing me and my brother, you know, James Brown, I'm black and I'm proud. And, you know, she, um, she sort of supplemented the curriculum we were getting no matter what school we were at with um, African-American history, with um, uh Af geography of the African continent, like all these things that mm. cause she was a child of the 60s, right? And so, and she had been in the Black Panther Party very, very briefly, like we're talking about like maybe a month. Um, right. But she, she actually went to high school with um, Fred Hampton, they were friends. Um, wow. And so, 
to be in this environment where kids were like rejecting their culture was very confusing to me. And one of the wonderful full circle moments that happened for me when I moved to the Bay Area was um, I went to, uh, uh, you know, they do ceremony on Alcatraz Island twice a year in the Bay Area, once for Indigenous Peoples Day, formerly Columbus Day, and once for, um, you know, sometimes people call it thanks taking day, right? Mm. Um, and so I went one year um, to that ceremony and we literally got on the boat and the folks who were leading the, the drumming and the, and the singing on the boat were young people. And I cried. I absolutely cried because that had not been my experience living on the reservation. Um, and so to see you know, literally like hundreds of young people going to Alcatraz and excited about their culture and knowing their language and knowing the songs. Um, it healed something in me. Um, yeah. we, we also, you know, there were also funny things that happened on the res. Like we had our little hip hop crew and we would go to the powwows and put some cardboard <laughs> down and have, have battles. And so, um, <laughs> one of my fondest memories is definitely like going to the movie theater I'm trying to think, was the movie theater in Fort Defiance or in Window Rock or maybe between the two? But in any case, we, we went to the movie theater to see Electric Boogaloo 2. Um, oh, and yeah. I remember Burley like throwing M&Ms at me during the whole movie. <laughs> Very middle school, right? Like maybe like, stand it, Burley! <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Chris Lawson was in my crew, some other folks. Um, That's yeah. dope. Anyway. So, so it was it was a really powerful formative experience to 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 um to go to school there and to live there what so how did you after such a i mean it would it would it seems like by by at least by the end of high school your high school career you've traveled more than most people do in a lifetime what how how did you then end up at Spelman of all places? You know, honestly, I think Spelman was my mom's dream for me. I didn't really understand what she was suggesting when she suggested that I apply there. Um, and my parents were very smart in that they said, don't worry about that. At that time, you couldn't get waivers for the application fees. So they were like, don't worry about the application fees, apply to 10 schools which was considered a high number of schools. The common application was like a brand new thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I applied to 10 schools. I got into like six. Um, I really, really wanted to go to USC and study film. And at that time, and it's crazy, I remember these numbers. At that time, undergrad at USC was $18,000 a year and they offered me work study. And that was the only financial aid they offered me. And that was for tuition, by the way, not Damn. including living expenses, but but so it was 18,000, 15,000 with my work study, right? Um, Spelman was uh, $11,000 a year. Um, and that was to live on campus that included living expenses. And then they offered some financial aid that brought it down to $9,000 a year. Um, I, think it was, I think it was a straight up scholarship. Um, you know what, actually maybe it was 16,000 a year. In any case, Spelman without financial aid was was more was was less than USC was with financial aid, right? right? 
So it was kind of a no brainer. It was like, okay, I'm going to go to Spelman. (laughs) And when I went to, I did go to visit both campuses and USC has, I don't know, some insane number, you know, like 30,000 students or 50,000 students or something. And Spelman was like 2000, the high school, I I went to an alternative high school in Michigan, um, a non-traditional high school. Um, where half the students were geniuses and well i should say all the students were geniuses um and and all of the students were perceived as misfits right like if that's a more fair description um but i would not have graduated high school had i not had the access to the services at that school but that school only had 350 kids it's called community high school in ann arbor it's now like this fancy school that all the U of M parents send their kids to. But when I went there, nobody wanted to go there. There was no waiting list or lottery or any of that stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, yeah, it, it, we were just a bunch of misfits and geniuses. But anyway. Um, That's dope. Like a motley uh, crew of, of, of talented, diverse kids. Yeah. Um, and um you know, I think back on how inclusive that school was. That was pretty formative too. So every year for the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, they did something called the multi-ethnic feast where they put tables in the halls and everybody was encouraged to bring their cultural food. We had kids who, there's pictures of them in the yearbook who were openly trans. Um, At least two students within that 350 kids. Um, You know, I had friends who had problems with heroin um, and we're, we're literally like in recovery at 15. Right. Mm. Um, uh, so, so yeah, it took me a long time later to figure out like, oh, I was one of those kids that people call at risk, <laughs> yeah. which I hate that term. I, I much prefer, I, I much prefer rough and tumble. Cause I think it's just the kids who, you know, life is kind of put through the ringer. Right. Right. Um, there's nothing wrong with, with, with us, right. With those kids, with us. But, um, but I didn't, I didn't realize that I was, I, you know, anyway, so, so the idea of dropping me from that very inclusive, very supportive, very hands-on environment with lots of interventions and 350 kids into USC and Los Angeles, like I, I would not have made it. I would have been a college dropout. Um, but, by going to Spelman, which had 2000 students, I was still very much a maverick and oftentimes an outcast, but um, I was able to access the resources I needed. I was able to figure out um, what worked for me and what didn't work for me. Um, I, I majored in Spanish um, and I did study abroad for a year. Um, and then because my mom was like, I know you want to be a filmmaker. I know you wanted to be a filmmaker since you were on the res, you started talking about it, but you need a day job. And so I very obediently got a degree in education. I very disobediently never turned in my paperwork for a teacher's certificate. <laughs> <laughs> so I was qualified to teach, but I never actually got my credential. Um, uh, so yeah, I majored in Spanish and education and minored in film and television at, at Spelman. Um, I studied in Spain where I took classes from, um, your audience probably won't know who this person is, but Luis Buñuel's 
art director and Luis Bumuela is a famous surrealist filmmaker. Um, I'm sure many, many people know who Salvador Dali is. Um, right. And the surrealist movement was started by three people, Lorca, Bunuel, and Dali. They were all friends. Um, and so that was kind of cool. And then I did a semester in the Dominican Republic um, and met a lot of the independent filmmakers there that were sort of doing films on the side and working in advertising. And that was a very powerful experience. Um, but, but, but yeah, I, Spellman was my mom's dream for me. I think she wanted to be sure that I was going to be able to, um, you know, she grew up on a farm. She didn't have running water till she was 11. And so she was very aware of class distinctions in the United States. And I think she really wanted me to be able to hang out with rich kids, um, including bougie black people. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and sort of know the language and the customs and the and the way to move in those spaces. And so that's why she really wanted me to go to Spelman. Um, but it allowed me to become more certain in my cultural roots. It allowed me to um, see myself in the curriculum, right? So by the time I got to USC, you know, I, I knew about... Um, not just Spike Lee, but Oscar Michelle, right? I knew my black film history. Um, and that turned out to be really important to surviving USC. I actually needed sort of the strength that being at a women's college and being at a black college gave me um, in order to survive the racism, the sexism, the classism, and just the cutthroat like, um, willingness to stab people in the back that is part of the culture at USC, I hate to say. Damn, you you called <laughs> it out. I, like it's you hear about it. Um, but until you're you're able to be actually in that environment, I don't think you really know what it's like. Was it was that was that something that you had you ever experienced anything like that in, in your early career? No. No. I was very lucky in that people who didn't like me just stayed away from me. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> you know, I found out later, like, oh, remember this person in high school? She really hated you. And I was like, oh, I had no idea. You know, and they were like, yeah, you'd, you'd come walking down the hall talking and she'd like walk the other way. And I was like, okay. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, USC is really trying to... I will say it this way, right? I think it's true of a lot of things in life, not just the film business, right? Parenting, where you're trying to figure out, okay, the world can be a cold, cruel, harsh place. How do I prepare somebody for that, right? Yeah, yeah. Do I prepare them for that by, by being really gentle and loving with them and telling them they're amazing and they can do anything they want to do, right? I believe in you, I believe in your abilities, or do you sort of smack them around every once in a while to toughen them up to get them ready for this world? Yeah. I can't answer that question for anybody else. I can say for me, I'm really thankful that I had the sort of environment that some people would call coddling while I was at USC. Um, I also, I also took classes at USC at the Mass Media Arts Department at Clark Atlanta University. I do need to shout them out. It's an incredible program. 
um, you know, that has, has been foundational for so many of the Black folk who have come through CNN, for example. Um, and also, I studied under, he's since retired, but Dr. Herbert Eichelberger, Dr. E, who taught many, many, many Black filmmakers, including Monty Ross and Spike Lee. Um, wow. Right. And Come so on. Dr. E was just very, you know, he created this bubble in which we as filmmakers were encouraged to help each other out, to support each other. There was no insurance for the equipment. Like <laughs> we mm -hmm. had this old CP-16, this like World War II camera and like, okay, <laughs> I go on your shoot and I run the camera and you direct. And then something weird happens with the camera. Now we got to figure out how to fix it. Cause next week we're going on my <laughs> shoot where I'm going to direct and you're going to operate the camera. Um, and so is this very beautiful, intimate kind of, you know, um, scrappy team of filmmakers that kind of made do with what we had, right? And then at USC, it was like, um, you know, they had insurance and they had a risk management department and you had to submit your screenplay and you had to, mm. you know, um, check out the, reserve the equipment and check it out and return it on time and you know, you, you got access to certain equipment your first year in the master's program and then your second year in the master's program. And everybody was always really frustrated because they were like, well, these cameras that we have, you know, we had to shoot with Super 8 film at the time. I know now they don't use film anymore there, but, um, you know, and you're like running to do your shoot, then you got to run your film to the lab and then you got to run back to the lab to pick up your film and then you got to physically cut it with like, razor blades and yeah. tape and you know <laughs> and get it all done in time to screen it in class and you know and then you're mixing four tracks of sound on like a little cassette player and like but Damn. but at the time it was the top equipment and by the time you got to to sort of the top independent film equipment right that you started out with and then by the time you got to the third year you know you're using um uh, Steinbeck, real to real edit, um, uh, not edit bay, uh, flatbed. Um, you know, you're using cameras and equipment that are like worth hundreds of thousands of dollars that the quote unquote big boys use. Yeah. We didn't have access to that level of equipment at, at in the Atlanta University Center, right? Spelman, yeah. Morehouse, Clark, Morris Brown. Welcome back, Morris Brown. Um, Shout out, I, Morris Brown. Yeah, and the and the ITC, right? Um, and now Morehouse Medical, like that collection of black colleges makes magic happen, right? right. But then when I got into this other environment, like I was in a, a class for a whole semester with a filmmaking partner where we had to like journal every week and write, you know, this is what I did this week and this is what I did this week and this was frustrating and this was, I learned this and blah, 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 blah. And we got to the end of the semester and we had made this film together and he got an A in the class and I got a C. And it turned out that the whole semester, all he wrote in his journal was, here's how CB screwed up this week. Here's, you know, CB didn't show up on time for this and CB didn't, and many of the things he said were lies. They were not true. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I was blown away that somebody could do something like that. I, it never even occurred to me to speak negatively of him in my journal, you know? Um, 
at the end of the day, nobody looks at your grades. Like it really doesn't matter. I'm glad I, I live by a moral compass, right? Yeah. Um, and that particular filmmaker is not making movies anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Cause it is a people business. Yeah. Um, and, and I wish I could grab every USC student by the shoulders and sort of shake them and tell them that like, you think this is the way Hollywood works, but it's not actually how it works. Your, your best um, allies in the five to 10 years after you graduate film school, any film school are your fellow students. They're gonna mm. give you more jobs than any professor, than any website, than any you know family member that you know, then your peers are gonna provide you with opportunity. That's that's fascinating. It, and I, I've also heard that heard that about uh, USC film school in particular. It's mm -hmm. the connections. Mm -hmm. That yep. that's what you really want. You want to go there and you want to make connections with people. Yep. It, yep. Is how how so in in college did you really did you what was what was the difference other than just environment and um um uh, budget. Was there, did you, did you, was there, you know, uh, Spelman versus USC? And I know one was, uh, you were there for, for a bachelor's, the other one was a master's. So it was a little more focused, but was, did you have the quote unquote black experience or the quote unquote college experience? Was there a difference between the two in, as far as environments go? Um, Full disclosure, I should mention my daughter is at USC as an undergraduate right now. Okay, no um, disrespect in to this USC. Cinema school. No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't I don't mind speaking my truth. I'm not I'm not saying that, but but it's more about um uh I feel qualified to speak to USC as both an undergraduate and a graduate level institution. And mm -hmm. I feel qualified to say um to speak to things not just that happened, you know, 25 years ago when I was there, um, but but uh, sort of the culture of the school now. Um, and I have over the years helped several people get into USC. Um, and I continue to offer that as like, like, because I mentor so many young people. And even I was at the um, Spelman has a documentary program now. I was at Spelman a couple weeks ago answering questions for some of the seniors there. And I told them, like, finish your application a month before it's due and send it to me. And I'll, I'll give you some suggestions for how to make it better and how to make it more likely to get in. Nice. Um, uh, I will say, you know, the college experience, when, it, when people say that, they're usually talking about undergrad. And the college experience is not just one experience. It's thousands of them. And you're right, a PWI, a... a, a primarily white institution is a very different experience than an HBCU. And I'm sure people have spoken about that at length. And there's, you know, there's lots of things that people can look up online about that. Um, I am a real big believer that um, every black child should have an experience where they are in the majority at some point in their academic career. Right. Um, and that might happen for my kids. It happened in middle school where they were in a school that was like, I don't know, 80, 90% black here in Oakland. Um, uh, 
for some people, it happens in high school. Um, you know, having black teachers, I think Abbott Elementary has done a really good job of sort of opening people's eyes to, to the, the benefits of having black teachers for black students. Um, yeah. And so if you haven't had that from K through 12, right, I think an HBCU becomes really important. Um, and on every scale that you can measure, you know, completion of undergrad, completion of graduate school, success in their career, financial well-being, uh, marriage rates, um, like, like every measurement you can think of, mental health, all of it, um, kids who go to HBCUs do better. And we don't mm. understand all the reasons why, right? Like not all of them are tangible. So I'll say that. But I think there are people for whom like, They've had almost the HBCU experience at their high school. I was just in New Orleans recently taking photographs during um, sort of pre-Mardi Gras. I mean, it's all Mardi Gras, but like not the week of all the huge floats and crowds, but the week when, you know, like it's mostly locals and stuff. Um, yeah. And those marching bands <laughs> from all the area high schools, like they are serious and i know that that's true throughout the south right so there are many people who have had that you know going to the to the football games um you know mm -hmm. uh uh musical heritage you know being able to be in community in their high schools and they don't necessarily need an hbcu the hardest thing for me to see when i was a senior at spelman i did have friends who you know, were just academically at the highest levels and were petrified, like had gotten into places like M MIT and Harvard and Stanford and Princeton for graduate school, for medical school, for Georgetown, for law school, right? And they were petrified to go to a PWI because they'd never been in an environment where they were the minority because they came from a really strong community in Mississippi. You see what I'm saying? And they were right. like, I'm going to have to deal with racism. And I don't know that I can deal with racism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, so, so yeah. So there are advantages to both. I think um, uh, if you have that chance to have that experience where um, black professors, black teachers are loving on you in ways that are both supportive and critical, right? Like, hey, you, you've got to do better here. This is not good enough. I know you can do better. It hits different when a black teacher says that to you. Yeah. It hits different when that is said to you in a classroom of other black students. Who are working right? their I mean, ass I can, off, by the way. Right. And so, I, I mean, I can just say it, right? Like, if you were the only black kid in the room and the teacher was white and the other students are white and Asian, and the teacher says to you, I know you're not trying your hardest. It hits different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you might even dismiss it. You might even be like, they don't know what they're fucking talking about. Yeah. I'm working my ass off. And maybe you aren't, right? So, so yeah, those are all things I think are important for people to consider. I will say, if you are interested in the film business, you know, primarily Los Angeles, could be Toronto, could be New York, could be Atlanta right? But if you are interested in the film business, there's only a handful of programs you can go to. USC is one of them. AFI is one of them. Columbia College is one of them. 
NYU Tisch School of the Arts is one of them, right? Yeah. And all of those are PWIs, right? So you're going to have to, if you want to function at like those highest levels, um, if you're trying to have a career where you're trying to win Oscars, you need to learn that language of cinema. You need to learn. And that's not to say that that's the best language of cinema or the only language of cinema, mm-hmm. but, um, but you want to go to one of those gatekeeper institutions. Having said that, two things. First, I do not believe in paying 60, 80, $100,000 in student loans to go Come to on. film school. Come on. Um, you should only go to film school if your family can afford it or if you can get full scholarships. And you might have to do something like, you know, in the Bay Area, go to Laney College or, be, or Berkeley City College for two years and transfer into USC, right? For your, for your undergrad degree in order to get that scholarship. Because a lot of times those of us who like film, we're not super act like, like we're really smart, <laughs> but we don't always follow the rules. And so sometimes we wind up with not the greatest transcript. I failed every class my junior year except photography. And it was Get kind of, of intentional. I, yeah, no, I'm not kidding. It is, it, it is a miracle I got into Spelman. I had, I think, a 1040 on my SAT. Wow. I literally talked to University of Michigan on the phone and met with them in person. When I talked with them on the phone, they were like, okay, what, you know, I said, I'm an African-American student. I'm in high school here in Ann Arbor. This is my GPA. Would I get into U of M? They were like, yes, absolutely. When I met with them in person (laughs) and I said, this is my GPA and blah, 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 blah. The admissions officer looked at me and he was like, you would not get into U of M. Mm. <laughs> uh, now, mind you, I might have actually gotten into U of M, come to think of it. I think that was one of the schools I got into because I wrote a kick-ass essay. That's how I got into the schools that I got into, where I explained what had happened that year. And one of the classes I had failed that year, I, it was a math class, and I took it again my senior year, and I got an A in it, right? So I showed evolution and growth. But I would not get into Spelman in this day and age there's like i'm pretty much positive that i would not have been admitted to spelman and Um, and you you were still accepted from to six out of the ten yes that's crazy congratulations man i don't know what it was or what but that's unheard of but again like rough and tumble kids we are geniuses (laughs) you know and i think that's really important for people to understand when the rules are applied to you in in ways that are unfair you you figure it out you know how to go up and under and over and through when how how did how did you know film oakland would call it hustle mode (laughs) (laughs) that's that that is something that we yes we we are very very much um, that that's ingrained in us um, because I, I think it, especially in black culture, it's like um, you, you have to be phenomenal in, in yeah. something, whether it's sewing, singing, athletics, you just be great, whatever you're good in, 
be great at it. Um, there is no such thing as mediocrity. When, when did you know? Well, that- and, and I will challenge you on that, actually, right? Because mm-hmm. we both know there are mediocre white men out there living their best life. There are oh, yeah. mediocre white women out there living their best life. And I, I don't think we should put that pressure on ourselves as black people mm-hmm. to be exceptional all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. What I would say is, you know, and this is part of that filmmaking thing, right? Find the thing that you lose track of time when you're doing it, because then you will be happy, comfortable, you know, in a state of flow doing it over and over and over again and you will get better at it right but you don't you know imposter syndrome is real right and even like as a as a black woman i spent so much of my filmmaking career going i'm not ready to do that right now i'll be ready when and not doing things that i look back on now and i was like i was fucking ready yeah. But I didn't think I was exceptional. And so I, I took a step back. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I, so, yeah. Like USC has a fast track kind of process where you submit a script, you get picked to direct your script, um, and, and you wind up like getting meetings with agents and stuff like that. I was so intent when I was at USC that I was going to be a director of photography that I took one of the classes that qualified you to be a director and not the other. But then just for the experience, right? I wrote a script. I took, I won't tell you what it is, (laughs) but I took a historical (laughs) black writer's characters and I updated them for Los Angeles in the 1990s. And I submitted that script. Oh my fucking God, they loved that script. And they pulled Mm. me aside and they were like, we want to pick you for first look. That program's called first look. And they were like, but we can't because you didn't take this class. And Mm. that is one of the biggest regrets of my life that I didn't set myself up for possible success. Right. Cause I was just like, I'm not ready. I'm not a director. I don't, you know, I'm not exceptional. I wrote this script. It's okay. But it was a unique script. It was different from everybody else's script. And it had funny moments in it. And it had drama in it. And it had painful moments in it. You know? Um, it was a good script. And um, yeah. So so I just want to give a little pushback on that. Like, you know, I watched my kids. My kids went to, for middle school, the, the black school they went to was a Kip Charter school. And they were told at that school every fucking day, you have to be twice as good to get half the recognition. Mm-hmm. Bullshit. Bullshit. It, it, it leaves a and, huge and, gap for the ones that don't hit that mark. Um, yeah, and, 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 and it and created a level of stress and anxiety in these kids that, yeah, you know, like, yeah. I think you can say that to your kid occasionally, but not every day. Oh my God. You're basically saying to them, you have to fix racism. No, (laughs) no, you don't have to carry that on your back. (laughs) Go do your best job. Be imperfect. It's okay. Speak your truth. Tell your story, you know, as a filmmaker and you will find your audience. You will find your niche. You will be authentic. Don't, don't try to be perfect. Don't, don't don't force yourself to be exceptional. And what you're seeing now is a lot of people who 
are are stating that exceptional rhetoric are mm -hmm. actually not African American. They are immigrants from Africa or the children of immigrants from Africa. And there's still a lot of internalized colonialism there. There's still a lot of you have to earn your place at the table. No, you don't. No, you yeah. don't. You belong yeah. at the table, you and your imperfect self. And if, if they invite you to the table, go build your own table. It's okay. <laughs> I'm here to say it's okay. Build, build your table. own table. It, build your now, own table where everybody's welcome. And 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 we we were talking about this uh, earlier um, in in a previous episode. Um, don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, yes. the, the whole the whole way of thinking that I have to do this by myself, or else it's not valid, is is that's also a, a colonial way of thinking. It's 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 almost as if if I don't do this by myself, I don't get full credit, and I don't I don't get credit for beating or surviving the struggle or being a, a champion of the struggle, um, which is also something that we grew up with. Well, I, I know growing up for me, it was, especially being the oldest and being the first to do a lot of things, it was, mm. um, you have to, you have to be the one that ends this cycle, or you have to be the one that, that makes, or that takes your generation to the next level kind of thing. So anything that was done, whether it was playing football, even being a bat boy for the Giants, it's like, you're you're the first African-American bat boy, fuck school. I'm like, yeah, but I want to play football. Fuck football. You're the first. <laughs> you're the, <laughs> yeah. You're the first. And for anybody coming after you, you got to set the bar. And so right. it, it became a thing like, fuck, now I'm, I'm holding, I'm holding, every african-american in this position that's coming after me on my back fuck right. i just want to go to school man i'm 14 i just want right. to be a kid but it, we but at, at times whether we know it or not we put that on our on our youth yeah have you yeah, have yeah, you yeah. seen that in the kids that you work with that they there's they're struggling with uh the weight of their family or the weight of their community yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've been happy to see is shifting in the film business um, is this requirement that you work for free for extended periods of time. Um, it, uh, it was always illegal. I would just say that. It was always mm -hmm. illegal, right? Mm -hmm. You can ask an intern to work for free if they are getting school credit. And also if they are not working a job that you could pay someone to do, like they literally have to be doing something, they, they can't be eliminating a paid job. And, and for people who are in the film business, who wanna go toe to toe with me on this, go look up the Supreme Court case from the magazine industry, read that shit. Cause we have been doing it in illegal ways in the film business for decades and decades and decades. Um, and, and what that does is it means that, that, and that's not to say black does not equal poor, poor does not equal black, right? But right. that's to say that black families that don't have enough, um, uh, income or resources to sort of say, Hey, my child, <laughs> go move to Los Angeles and I will pay your rent and, and gas bill, you know, to drive your car around and your insurance 
and your food bills for a year so you can go work for free and people can get to know who you are and then you can get paid work, right? Like families that can't do that, though the film industry loses access to those kids because they're also geniuses, right? Yeah. I should I should mention for context. So we talked about Spellman, we talked about USC a little bit, but I should also mention when I went to um when I was in Atlanta, I worked on a lot of projects. I worked on a lot of music videos, a lot of independent films, because I already knew I wanted to be a filmmaker. And that work was by and large free. One of the things I worked on was a tribute to Coretta Scott King mm. that was directed by Pamela Poitier. Yes, Sidney Poitier's daughter. Nice. Incredible experience. All Black women working on that project. I was sort of tasked with going through a bunch of historical footage and finding moments that could be used in little compilations that we're going to show dur during the tribute. And then during the tribute, I was just a house PA, right? Um, take this microphone, hand it to Carlos Santana. You see those <laughs> cables on the floor, take them down. Okay, now the show's over. We're going to pack everything up, right? And I went up to the lighting designer of that show and I said, hey, I want to do what you do. Um, his name is Walter Glover Sr. Um, mm. Walter's first job was pulling cable on Sanford and Son. Walter wow. was the lighting designer on Apartment 227, among wow. many, many, many other shows. So not only did he sort of sit me down after we had wrapped in the middle of the night, you know, and, 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 and I will say this, this is so, so important. I was safe with him, Right. So yes. it was one or two in the morning. I was 18, 19 years old. No, I was older than that. I must have been 21 or 22. But I was a cute young woman, right? And right. I was safe with him. He pulled out his lighting plot. He showed me why he had placed every light where he had placed it. He handed me the lighting plot and said, you can keep this. He handed me a lighting template, which is a little piece of plastic that we used to use to like draw the lights on the plot, um, on the on the almost like an architectural diagram, right? Right, right. Um, this size, you know, shape for a 500 watt light or a 1K light or a 2K light or a 5K light, right? Um, and he said, when you get to LA, look me up, call me. And so I did that. And so while I was at USC, every Friday, I would take the bus for two hours because that's how it took from USC to Sunset Gower Studios in Hollywood. And I would sit with Walter on whatever show he was working on, whether that was Boy Meets World, whether that was In Living Color, whether that was, um, you know, him sort of swapping out and subbing for somebody on some show. Um, and... That was a whole other education. And then when I graduated, one of his, um, I sort of met somebody in LA just by walking up to a film shoot and being like, here's my phone number and I would like to, to PA, right? I would like to work for free. <laughs> I didn't have to work free for long, but, but that person, Chris, oh, I can't remember Chris's last name, but he was a Filipino lighting designer between him and one of Walter Glover's gaffers, I had three years of work as a Griffin electrician. Doing that work, I told no one I had gone to either Spelman or film school. I knew mm. better. Because these were blue collar union guys 
um, who taught me a whole other education. It was like another master's degree in yeah. set etiquette, in doing things in ways that were clean and safe and efficient, right? In not being stupid, in not being um, uh, disrespectful, even when everybody's stressed out and has been working really long hours and is trying to like, you know, like, okay, turn everything around, <laughs> you know, yeah. and you're like, you know, walk fast, don't run is a big one, right? right. Um, so I, I feel super, super thankful for those experiences. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention those experiences. The, the gaffer that I worked for frequently on stuff, there's a lot of funny stories about him because his name was Foster Denker and he was um, in charge of teaching the safety classes for the union. But on the independent shoots, he broke a lot of the safety rules. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, there's stuff like, I remember Foster Denker yelling at me once cause I was whistling and he was like, you never whistle on a stage ever, ever, ever. Like it's bad luck. What's wrong with you. Right. And then come to find out that back in the day before we had electronic systems to raise and lower the grids or even in a theater to raise and lower the curtains. They used a system of whistling, the stagehands did, with each other to tell, you know, raise that sandbag or lower that sandbag or raise that light wow. or lower that background. That's why you should never whistle on a stage because they might have heard your whistling yeah. and thought it was Drop the a, sandbag a time. Exactly. And people could die, right? So I learned all this old school stuff that's not in any book. You're, right? you're learning so there, So there was... There was value in working some of those free jobs, but I'm glad that they're not free now because it allows for more diversity of people to be able to work those jobs, to learn those things. And um, we still, in the film business, those, those roles are called below the line roles. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a big major film like Black Panther, right? <laughs> Has one director, but it's gonna have at least 30 grips and electricians right we need folks and we need black folks in those jobs and so i always encourage people who are good with their hands who maybe have a construction background um to consider trying to get into the stagehands union the electricians union the grip union um because they're really great jobs you can you can buy a house with those jobs in california you get yeah. you get a pension. You get, um, you know, healthcare benefits for you and your family. Like, those are great jobs. And you don't need any. Like, you don't even need a high school diploma for most of those jobs. Wow, yeah. that that's that's dope. And and like you said, you don't you don't have to be the director or the lead actor or actress. You you can you can have a gaffer job or an electrician or a lighting job, and be just as important um on that set as as someone yeah. else we a lot of time we don't hear that a lot of times um we we see the award going to producers actors well not even producers uh directors actors um we we don't really get to see the lighting um uh crew or or anyone that has to do with uh electricians uh or i mean electric or anything like that uh set decorating um mm -hmm. script supervising Catering. Catering, we, yeah. we we never really hear about them, but these are all important 
important jobs on set. Yeah. What CB? What 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 put the the uh, lit the fuse for you when it comes to what? How did you get? How did, when did you know that that's what you wanted to do? I have memories in middle school of thinking about advertising and like having an interest in the advertising agency. And what if I was making those commercials? When I went to high school, I was, um, I did stagehand for drama. I, I did that. And my high school, because it was an alternative high school, the local TV station had donated um, three old cameras and like a chroma key setup. And so we used to do um, soap operas and weather reports. um and also so basically the high school was set up where anybody in the community that we could prove was qualified to teach us something um we could take a class from them so that was a big deal um and allowed me to sort of get some work experience while I was in high school but it also shifted the kind of classes we offered so we didn't have English 101 we had women's literature and African-American literature and drama, actually theater class counted as an English class. Mm. Um, we had a journalism program where we published our own newspaper once a week. And I, I was in that journalism program. We had a working um, black and white photography lab. And so I took photography for three years and developed my own um, images. And nice. that counted for science, right? So. Wow. Um, so somewhere in the middle of high school, by the time I was in the middle, I was like, I'm going to be a photojournalist. And then I I actually was able to find it once the photograph, but I went to an exhibit of Pulitzer prize winning photographs, journalistic photographs. And there was a photograph of a field and sort of the sun kind of peeking through the clouds. Um, you know, a kind of pretty nature shot and right in the foreground, like right by the photographer, there was um, hips and a spine. And I can't remember if it was, I think it might've been the war in El Salvador, but um, certainly somewhere in Central America. And I looked at that and I was like, I don't wanna be that person that's standing next to that dead body. Yeah. Um, and, and that was when I started to shift into filmmaking. Um, uh, and started to think about like, okay, I could do th- this cinematography thing because it brings together my love of photography and being a stagehand in the in the the theater productions and doing lighting and blah 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 blah. And then she's got to have it came out, and it was a wrap. Once that happened, I was like, oh, <laughs> I could do this, and it, <laughs> and the, the arrogance of it. Like I had no contacts in Hollywood. My mom had been an actress for a brief period of time um, and had gone on a bunch of auditions where she was told she was too dark to play white characters and too light to play black characters. Mm. Um, And uh, she was just like, are you sure about this? (laughs) You know, and I had cousins who lived in South Central LA and I was just like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. You know, the arrogance of youth. Um, my mom used to always say to actors, anytime I, I, you know, sort of had an actor friend over or something, you know, and they would ask her like, oh, you used to act and you, you know, you performed at Ford Theater in DC and you did this and this and this and you gave it up and why and blah, blah, blah. And she would ask them, she would say, do you want to act or do you want to be famous? Wow. 
She said, because being famous is not in your control. She said, it really is luck of the draw. But if you want to act, if you love the craft of acting, you can go to any city in the country and they have a small regional theater and you can act your whole, you like every week <laughs> if you love the craft. And I think there's a similar thing with filmmaking, with, with directing, with being a DP, with, right? I went back to visit USC probably 10 years ago and I met with Doe Mayer. And, and by the way, I'm only name dropping because this is a podcast. I don't generally do this, but I know <laughs> that some people will listen to this podcast and want to look these people up. Please so look that's these why I'm up. mentioning names um, to honor them and to allow their memories to, to, um, to live on, right? Yes. Doe, Doe Mayer passed away, but she was a... Um, documentary professor at USC. And I took, there were five young people here in Oakland that I mentored as they made a film about the relationship between Cambodian youth in East Oakland and the police um, called I Ain't Leaving that actually went to a very prestigious documentary festival where they invented an award to give to the film because they were so impressed with it. Got the front door. Um, Iowa docs. Um, but so I took these five young people from Oakland. I was like, your film's showing at the Los Angeles Film Festival. We're going to go hang out at USC and you can meet some documentary students and you can ask questions. Um, and if you think being at USC is something you want to do, like I will help you, right? In right. the end, none of them decided they wanted to do that. But um, one of them's a veterinarian now, one's a musician, they're all doing different things. But um, Doe Meyer met with us and sort of answered the kids' questions. And she sort of pulled me aside very hush-hush at one point. And she said, so you make movies for a living? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> yeah. I said, I teach young people how to make movies. And I also have my own production company. And I make, like, industrials. I make movies for, you know, like, small companies and government agencies and stuff like that. And she, her eyes got very big. And she said, you're very, very lucky. She said, that's very rare um among your classmates mm. and i didn't realize that you know and so i started sort of hunting people down on like facebook and stuff and you know one of my classmates committed suicide because he felt like a failure um one of my classmates teaches muay thai now <laughs> in um nevada um you know, there are definitely some of my classmates who are DPs and who, like, you would recognize their name in credits and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, like, one of my classmates, I talked to her and she was living in Arizona selling Herbalife. Wow. Right? Um, and so that thing of, like, do you want to be famous or do you want to be, do you want to act, I think applies to filmmaking, too. Like, you might never be famous, but if you have a love for filmmaking, you'll find a place and a way and a space to do it. Um, those skills are transferable to any field that exists. You know, you can make movies about uh, medicine. You can make movies about teaching. You can make movies about um, construction. You can, you know, I mean, the, the time lapses that I do, I, um, I hire a local union member who helps me to sort of build an enclosure, a box that the camera is going to go in. And we set things up with like batteries and solar cells. And, you know, it's kind of like an engineering project, right? And there's definitely some math to it as far as like, okay, it's going to take an image every one second or every two seconds. And the image is this many 
megapix, me megabytes and the card takes this much, you know, the card's a, a 128 gig card. And so it's going to fill up in this amount of time and, you know, we'll have to come back and change the cards and blah, 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 you know, it's a whole thing. Um, but I love doing them. And then when you sort of stitch it together and post and like things that were moving very slowly or moving very quickly and just the drama of it, like I love it. I absolutely love it. But it's literally just me <laughs> and a, a person who is really good with, um, you know, a table saw and, uh, and design, <laughs> right? Yeah. Literally, like there's no actors, there's no, none of that. That's, but dope. I'm still happy. But it's, and it's still, of, uh, there's still storytelling. Like there's, and it's still storytelling. Th that's, that's, that's art. That's art. I, I think, um, and, and that's something that we forget sometimes is that um, it's, it's art that, that we're watching, that we're taking in, that we're digesting. It's not just entertainment. Um, uh, it's, it, it is an art form at its finest. It's an mm -hmm. art form, something that is going to stay with us uh, uh, for a long time. Um, like, for example, um, the, the, the Godfather, uh, one of my favorite movies. But it's, mm -hmm. it's not just entertainment for me. For me, it was, well, this is how a man should conduct himself amongst animals, am amongst criminals, mm. amongst um, an elite society of people who are professional throat slicers. <laughs> this is yeah. how you conduct yourself. Um, or this is, uh, for example, um, 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 what, what was it? Uh, we were talking about Tupac's Me Against the World. Um, it, it, it was like a, a soundtrack for life for me in, in, in during my teenage years, uh, maybe around 14 to 16. Um, mm. and the reason it was a soundtrack was because of how relatable it was, how, how much it connected to what my everyday life was, my feelings, my thoughts, my emotions. And, and then I could look back on it and say, damn, I'm glad I'm no longer in that space anymore where I could see death around the corner and it was felt like me against the world kind of thing. So it, yeah. it, at its finest, it wasn't just like a beat and somebody rapping. It was, it was art because it, 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 it was, it was like a mirror to, to my life. Um, it's, well, it's, and, and, and I will say this, like, I think, um, this is the most important thing for the future of filmmaking, what you just touched on. And, and that is, we're seeing a split right now between sort of the Academy Awards, right? And mm. popular media. And there's all this debate, right? Like, is a superhero movie art, right? Is right. Tyler Perry art? Right? right and you know i think it's all well and good for people who <laughs> have masters and phds in film <laughs> <laughs> um to sort of you know sit on their high horse and say like ah you know it should be this way and it shouldn't be that way and you know how come tyler perry is telling the same story over and over again right yeah. but there is a healing that happens in art right, right. um there is, oh God, what is her name? Ash Ashikara. 
there's an uh, uh, a curator actually here in Oakland who calls artists second responders, right? Mm. There is a healing that happens when we consume good art, right? It right. tells us how to perceive ourselves and how to perceive the hardships of our lives, yeah. right? And, and how to, to, to rise above or not, right? Forgive yourself for being imperfect, right? Yeah, yeah. For, for yelling at that person, for shit, for setting your ex-husband's shit on fire. Yeah. Into the bathroom, <laughs> right? Right? There's, I immediately there's knew who you were talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think the future of cinema um, needs to figure out how to bring those two things together. If you study quote unquote fine art from Europe, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, yeah. Europe used to always talk, European countries used to talk about high culture and low culture, right? Low culture was of the people, right? Well, I'm sorry, high culture doesn't make money in film anymore. Period. Mm. It's done. It's over. We might actually lose all our movie theaters because yeah. people keep trying to make, you know, like the, the, the friggin' She Said movie successful mm -hmm. in movie theaters and it, it's just people don't go to see art movies in the movie theaters anymore they'll go see them at home right and so yeah. hollywood's trying to figure out well what can we show in the movie theater that's not an art film that's you know and and maybe that's, that's not a superhero film because the superhero films are really expensive and so there has to be this kind of bringing together of um you know what what film aficionados love and what um most people love you know right. that's that's important that's the future that's like how film is going to survive and by film i mean that experience of sitting in a dark movie theater with you know 200 to, to 2000 other people watching the screen laughing together gasping together right um uh and and i really believe all of the big problems of the world like if you're looking at infectious diseases if you're looking at how we design cities like they can't be fixed anymore by the elites mm. the elites have tried all their ideas and they've all gotten us to this really weird place that we're at right now and yeah. so that's why you see places like Harvard going, you know, we're going to make a certain percentage of our students low income, immigrant, yeah. African-American, Native American, blah, 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 right? It's almost like it has to come full circle or it has to come yeah. back to the to the human, to the, to, to I, well, I don't want to say, but ground level, um, yeah. um, grassroots level. Uh, yeah. To where it's accessible to to all, like like you said, the the high class is is pretty much done for. Pac says something about that, um, about the the poor eating the rich. Um, mm -hmm. um, basically, there was going to come a point in time where the rich would be so over um, saturated, over just just complete full of themselves that there would be nowhere else to go and the amount of people that were still hungry, still out here struggling would, would, would be in higher numbers so that there would be nowhere else for them to go, but to, to face that, 
that 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 uh 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 that conclusion of well we have to give in we have to, we there's no more that there's nowhere that we can uh no more gates that we can hide behind kind of thing that happened that happened that's what happened during the pandemic yeah. there's a reason they kept throwing cash at us during the pandemic mm. that was that moment Right. We went from a gilded age. Right. And the other previous gilded age was right before the depression of 1929, before the stock market cash crash. Right. Yeah. Our gilded age was this tech boom and people, you know, like taking their dogs to a dog restaurant and spending one hundred and fifty dollars <laughs> for their dog to eat. Like, <laughs> right. Like that. That was our gilded age and our the way that especially young people perceive capitalism is forever broken it's done and they knew that they were facing mass riots rebellions um uh uh ratings of wealth like and there's still a little bit of it happening now um but 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 yeah so they kept throwing cash at us here's two thousand dollars here's you know x amount of money per month per kid Here's, you know, money from the state. Here's, okay, you don't have to pay your rent. Here, you know, like here's, okay, everybody gets free lunch at school. School isn't right. even open. You can go to the school and pick up free lunch for your kids. You just have to tell me you have kids. They don't even go to this school. Okay, cool. Here you go. Here's free food, right? Like they were throwing money at us because we were, we were about to eat the rich, right? That was yeah. literally what was about to happen. And, and kind of was happening too. But, but just to go back to film for a second um, and the, the essentialness of black filmmakers, I think, you know, I came up during what some people have called the black film renaissance, right? There was one year in the nineties where um, 22 films by black directors came out, Hollywood films in one year, right? Everybody from um, uh, Maddie Rich to I have forgotten her name, but the woman shout who out did Maddie that. Rich. Oh my gosh, stop it! <laughs> stop, um, but I'm out. saying one year that many black directors, and at that time, one in four moviegoers was an African American man or young man or woman between the ages of 15 and 24. Yeah. And you know, for those of us in the hood that went to see Goodfellas on opening weekend, we know that to be true. We remember. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> we remember, right, what that looked like. Um, and that was when the boom of sort of art house cinemas started because white people didn't want to be in the theaters with black kids. That's when Magic Johnson Theater opened and they said, no colors. You can come to the movies, but don't wear your colors. Yeah. Right? Yes. All that stuff happened. But, but having said that, what I saw in that generation, because I consider myself in that generation of filmmakers, what I saw in my peers were, um, there were kind of two kinds of people that went into film. One group of people loved film, right? Yeah. And wanted to make films because they loved the craft of filmmaking. And they would talk about Truffaut and, you know, like all these classic, you know, they might even say something like, um, you know, if you look at Sidney Poitier as a director, not an actor, you'll notice that he always um, looked at intersectionality, right? Um, so Buck and the Preacher is, is about Black and Indigenous relations. 
absolutely a hundred percent right but but so that's sort of one category the other category were people who were sick and tired of not seeing themselves on screen so they were like i want to be a filmmaker because i want to tell black stories yeah in my experience right looking at my peers um the ones who wanted to tell black stories didn't make it it's really important to study the history of film, to study the language of film, um, so that you can be, it's show business, right? You have to be creating product that moves. Yeah. Tyler Perry sort of found a way in the side door in the sense that he understood the, the traditions of the Chitlin circuit on a really, really deep level, right? And so what he's doing is honoring and emulating those traditions. But it's not like his films come out of nowhere. They are deeply rooted in culture. They are deeply rooted in a tradition of, uh, of storytelling um, that is different than the Hollywood sort of very um, uh, uh, oftentimes rooted in Jewish storytelling technique, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, tradition but he you know he knows his his stuff he knows his history as far as theater as far as um uh storylines that are successful with his target audiences and so i think that's you know for, for sort of people who are aspiring to be filmmakers that's kind of the most important piece of advice i can give you is study the craft make sure you understand why you're doing what you're doing do things with intention, not by mistake, right? Emulate the masters, whoever the master is to you. Oh, that's such a horrible word. I'm really thinking about it in terms of master and apprentice and union. But, <laughs> yeah, I get what you say. <sighs> I get it. Damn it. <laughs> um, but, but, but. The greats, you know, the, the, the ones yeah, who were, yeah. The ones I, who, who achieved, right? <laughs> don't, don't just study the people who are like in some dusty book on the back of the bookcase, you right. know? But like, why was Shaft such a success? Why did women go to see Shaft, even though the women in Shaft weren't portrayed so great, right? The original Shaft by Gordon Parks, who was Gordon Parks, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Study that. And then look at the modern version of Shaft. Watch both movies and try to understand why did the modern version of Shaft not make any money? Yeah. yeah. Right? Because because more than ever before it's going to be about money there's this movie coming out now called cocaine bear i'm really fascinated to see what happens they made it for 38 million dollars damn that's not a lot of money in hollywood money right the superhero movies are anywhere from 200 million to 650 million dollar budgets yeah but they know you know they're making an investment with the assumption that they're going to be able to make that money back and a little bit of profit right exactly um but if you make a movie for 38 million dollars right like most movies opening weekend is somewhere around post pandemic is somewhere around 20 to to 50 million so you're going to make your money back i think unless it bombs so yeah, or, I'll be curious to see because it's not quite a horror movie, not quite a comedy. It's a little bit of both, right? And if mm-hmm. it does well, it's a female director. And it's a female director who the last film she made, she fell flat on her face and made no money and made a mistake, like like 
talked trash in the press and got a lot of blowback for it, right? And she's getting another chair, which never happens for female directors. So I'm like mm. really curious to see if this movie makes money, all is forgiven. She's fine, right? Black filmmakers also don't get to make mistakes. Shout out to um, Rusty Cundiff. Um, <laughs> I, I think yeah. his, one of his first films, Fear of a Black Hat, um was was super artistic um yep. and 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 then i think it was sprung that that he came out with uh i know he acted in it. i don't know if he directed it mm -hmm. um but when when we're talking about actor uh directors getting first and second chances also um um uh what's the brother's name mm, john singleton uh rest mm -hmm. in peace who by all means, I th I thought was going to be the next even bigger than Spike Lee um, when it came to to movies. Um, but then after I think it was after um, higher learning, it's mm -hmm. like we almost we it, it was a while before we got to see another John Singleton film, um, other than the 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 Fast and Furious movie and i was wondering because you brought that up i was wondering is it because of of the the messages that some black filmmakers have or even some women directors have is it because of the message in the in the film that they are not uh financed anymore oh this is like we could spend a whole two hours talking about that topic <laughs> i would just say in general in general right and i i think you and i have had this conversation before about um about some filmmakers who figured out how to work the system i would say in general if you um make a movie for 10 million dollars and then it makes the studio 100 million dollars then they're going to give you 50 million dollars right? Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully that film makes the studio $150 million, right? right? You cannot make that second film that they said, you got $50 million, you cannot make it cost $75 million. Mm -hmm. They will shut you down, right? Gotcha. Um, you have to stay within your budget and you have to feed the machine, right? It's a business. And it's even more of a business than it used to be before, right? So, you know, you look at the golden age of Hollywood and every studio was run by a personality. They were run by these larger than life producers who were like, okay, I'm gonna make these B movies and I'm gonna make these Oscar movies and I'm gonna make these musicals that are gonna make a bunch of money and they're gonna fund the other two things. And, you know, there's always this balancing act, you know, I'm going to release 30 movies this year, but only 10 of them are going to make a profit. Right. Right. Um, I just finished reading this book. Crap. What was the name of it? I'll, I'll look it up and I'll send it to you so you can, you can um, answer people who email you and say, what's the name of the book? But I just read <laughs> this book that was based on, it's basically sort of, it's called something like the future of film. Um, but what this, this journalist did was he went through all the emails from the Sony hack okay, and he analyzed sort of how the film business was changing based on the content of those emails. Real brilliant idea, right? Um, and he talks about that, that transition from to franchises, 
right? Yeah. A franchise is a safe bet. If I make a Fast and Furious, I know I'm going to spend $300 million and I'm going to make a billion worldwide. Right. You know, maybe I'll spend $650 million because I got to pay all these actors, right? They keep adding more people. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to make my money back because it's, a, it's got a proven track record. Black Adam doesn't have a proven track record, right? So right. if you are the director who's handed Black Adam, maybe you want to like try and come in a little under budget, <laughs> you know, so that yeah. they don't have to, to hit such a target. And the thing that's crazy now is every film student is part of, uh, film studio is part of a huge multinational corporation. So, you know, you make one wrong turn your, your stock goes down, right? Right. And suddenly either some other company is gobbling up your company and the, the executives all lose their jobs or, 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 right? HBO made a bet. Warner Media actually made a bet. They were like, okay, we need to compete with Netflix. So what we're going to do is we're literally going to be like spending more money than we're earning for like three years, and we're going to pump up the content that we have on HBO. We're going to make this new platform called HBO Max. And hopefully we'll get enough subscribers in to compete with Netflix because we're going to make quality content. We're going to make Insecure. We're going to make um, Game of Thrones. We're going to make Westworld. Like we're going to make thinky thinky stuff that feels like steak and potatoes because Netflix is just making like bubblegum, right? right? And literally Netflix's numbers started going down. But because Warner Media was losing money, <laughs> their shares went down in value and Discovery was like, I'll buy that and bought Warner Media. Mm. And now Discovery has been spending the past year going, yeah, HBO is losing money. It was a long-term strategy. We're gonna lose money now to make money later, right? Worked for Disney, by the way, and Disney Plus. Yep. Right? But they're gutting it. They're literally like, this HBO show canceled. This HBO show canceled. This HBO show canceled. <laughs> and in fact, in a year, we're going to get rid of HBO Max. Everything's going to become Discovery now. And Discovery was making money hand over fist doing two things. One is, and this is streaming, which isn't exactly movies, but kind of the future of movies. But um, Discovery was making money with um, nonfiction content because it's really cheap to produce, right? And um, Yellowstone, which is a mm. streaming show that nobody in California or New York has ever heard of. <laughs> West, <laughs> Westworld, Westworld, people were four to five million people a week were downloading S episodes. At the same time, Yellowstone, 20 to 25 million people a week were downloading episodes. Mm. So now Yellowstone is like a whole franchise. There's 1922 and there, you know, there's like, I think three or four different spinoff shows from Yellowstone in addition to Yellowstone continuing. That's crazy. It, it, so I, I, I hear of Yellowstone. I've heard 1922. There's another one that I've heard a lot about, but I it's I, I don't even know where to find them. <laughs> like I don't They're even... on Paramount Plus now. Okay, that's fine. But they are all part of the Discovery family. That's crazy. 
And That's so, crazy. and so I would say this as black people, right? We are in an era right now because of these multinational corporations where the ability to make a movie or a TV show or a streaming show by black people for black people is going to be a long shot. Yeah. And so what you want to think about is, okay, let me look up the numbers for Abbott Elementary. Because clearly white people are watching that show. Mm -hmm. and, and let's see, out of curiosity, what are the percentages? Right? Mm -hmm. And really kind of study it. Like, what, what are the things about this show that people are loving? I could tell you one thing that they did right, which was um, they made it easy to find on streaming. And they were also broadcasting new episodes live whatever executive it was like it's very rare now for a sitcom or an hour-long show for them to be like make 18 of them <laughs> yeah usually they make like seven right they made like seven it did really well and then i think they've made 13 more and then they made like 18 more like they were very quick to respond to the market to see the show is gaining traction where we're going to make it easy to find on streaming and we're not going to show repeats if we can help it. We're going to have new episodes on live TV as well. Mm. Yeah, that 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 is that is something that that I that I noticed about Abbott Elementary. It it, it feels fresh. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's always fresh, and and it, it's unlike um, like shows uh, in the past where sometimes you'll you'll it'll be like maybe six five or six months before the new season comes on. Yep, yep. It's, it's, young writers and a really good mix of established actors with a lot of experience and you know new actors that are learning from those established actors quick-witted dialogue um mm -hmm. back to back it, it, it's it's pretty it, it's pretty fascinating actually um sometimes i'll i'll have to rewind it you know like hit the 10 second <laughs> Yeah, yeah, 10 yeah. second button because I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Did I, did I, I, I missed that. What did she say? <laughs> kind of thing. But it's the dialogue is so quick, uh, so quick witted. It, it, it's just, it's and really universal appeal. Like yeah. anybody could sit down and watch that show and, and understand what's going on and find it cute, right? You know, mm -hmm. if you don't understand the nuances of the issues about education, there's a love story in there for you, yeah. right? There's older characters and younger characters. Exactly. Like people can see themselves in that show. Um, and I'm sort of fascinated because there's like two new sitcoms now because Abbott Elementary did so well that are following all the same formulas that are like, I'm like, these, they are the last. One's like the Detroit Auto Show show thing. Mm -hmm. And the, the other one is... Um, uh, oh, Night Court. They brought Night Court back. Yeah. And they're both horrible. They're like all the things that we don't like about sitcoms. Yeah. The, the corny, sappy. I, I yeah. Yep. I tried Night Court. I used to, I love the old Night Court. Um, yeah. This one just felt kind of preachy, kind of milky, like, like milky in a way where it was like um, predictable. Um, it's absolutely. It, predictable the jokes are predictable and and the funny part is they didn't renew it for a second season but there's a there's a show called reboot 
Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, Like, literally, it's like everything they're talking about on Reboot, you can tell is happening in the writer's room. Night <laughs> 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 um, but that, But that's television. Like, we've been talking mostly about film, and that's television. So I, I will just say in short, if you want to go into Hollywood, right, read the trades. Read the trades. Read IndieWire.com. Consider a expensive ass subscription to variety.com you know or go to the library they have copies of them and in fact a lot of times at the library if you bring your device your phone or your tablet or whatever the librarian can help you set it up where you can read magazines and newspapers and books and stuff like that right with your library card from home like once your tablet is set up you don't even have to go into the library and you can check stuff out Oh, that's dope. Yeah. C CB, so study what, that stuff. What, 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 before we get out of here, I, I know I had you, we, we've been in here for a while now. I don't I want to let you get on with your day, but um, just a couple more things. One is yeah. there's, there, there was a movement uh, of, of women in film, particularly black women in film. And you, we would see uh, people like uh, Ava DuVernay, um, and she would have like, um, uh, I forget what TV show, what, uh, something sugar, something. queen sugar, queen, queen sugar. sugar. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and you, she, you would see her, um, uh, sponsoring, not sponsoring, but giving job, not, and I don't want to say giving job. She hired only female directors for that show. And okay. she kind of went and dug in the crates, right? She was like, okay, Julie Dash is an amazing filmmaker. We love her but she's not doing stuff right now. Let's make sure she directs a couple of episodes, right? Mm -hmm. There's a woman, an amazing woman named Rachel Ramis, right? Who was working as a professor and she pulled her and was like, I know your work. I know you can do this job. I want you to direct a couple of episodes. And by doing that, all those women were able to either reactivate their union membership or join the union and all of the women who directed episodes on queen sugar to my knowledge are still out there directing um that movement continues there is a woman named uh carol i hope i'm remembering her name correctly carol wyatt who runs a website called productions.com it is a national website you do not need to be in a union. You can sign up for a profile on that website and you can get booked for production jobs all over the country. Um, you know, whether you're a gripper and electric, whether you're a director, a camera person, there are job listings there, but also you can create a profile. They in fact provide a service to the studios where for a fee, they will provide the studios with a diverse crew for a project. Um, and so a lot of times you might not even see the job on the website, but they will pull you out of the database and offer you jobs. So I always, always, always encourage filmmakers from underrepresented groups, whether that's, you know, African-American community, um, other racial or ethnic groups, folks with disabilities, LGBTQ um, plus folks like register on productions.com, root around on there for jobs, because the more of us that are in that system um the 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 more the studios will use that system there are requirements that are coming for folks as far as like their ability to win oscars there are diversity requirements 
Um, yeah. Look those up, get familiar with those. You can play those to your advantage. <laughs> um, uh, but, but yeah, I think, I think that trend is going to continue because um, Hollywood knows it's broken and Hollywood knows that, that we can't continue to, you know, you can't just have black faces, right? You need brains behind the projects. It doesn't work when, you know, you have a, 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 a film about, I don't know, a family, a, a, a Mexican-American family from East Los Angeles, you know, and the director's white and the DP's white and the editor's white and the in documentary world where I do a lot of camera work, um, your key five positions, right? Your director, cinematographer, editor, sound person and producer, right? If you are telling a story about black people, at least two of those five people have to be black or you will not get funding. Mm. Um, and in fact, if you are non-black, you better, and you have a director of a project like that, you, you better have a really good explanation for why you're the best person to tell this story. Right. Because there's, they've shut down, there are activists who have shut down screenings at documentary film festivals chanting nothing about us without us. Damn. It, that, is, that... it is referred to as decolonizing film in the documentary world. This idea that documentary was extractive the outsiders would sort of parachute into communities, film them, get the story wrong, and then go make a bunch of money on the film festival circuit. And then the people who were in the film are like, wait, what happened? <laughs> yeah, wait, so in, uh, uh, I was trying not to bring this up. <laughs> you might have to divide this podcast into part one and two, because I have <laughs> lots of thoughts. <laughs> Sorry. The Woman King was one of those movies where I was cringing uh, watching it only because, and I didn't know that it was written by white women, but it, 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 the first scene of the movie was African women killing African men. And later in the movie, there's an insinuated sex scene uh, where it's insinuated a scene where it's insinuated that the main character and one of her captors had sexual intercourse right after her best friend is killed by the by the by her captors. And to me, I, I'm just I'm like, okay, I understand that we we have to have drama. I get it, but the 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 narrative of black women having to be strong without a black male or um in 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 spite of a black man or there being a black man who is uh violent towards her and she has to demonstrate her strength i i'm i'm, I'm i felt like this was something that we could have done Without yes, we can tell the story of a of a of an all woman or woman led uh, battalion or um, a group of generals, but can we? Is there a way to do it without showing the brutality against black men by black women to empower black women? And sometimes we can't talk about that without it sounding like we're against black women being empowered. If that makes sense. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a lot to unpack. I will say, first off, I have not seen the movie yet. And so I can't talk too much about the movie specifically. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of respect for the director. I think she's a really talented director. And I do think if everybody else is white, but you have a black director, um, that counts for something because mm-hmm. the buck stops here with the director, right. period. Um, and so it, me personally, right? And other people may feel different, but in theater, you know, the writer is the writer and the director may not change any words without permission from the writer. In film and television, the director changes words all the time. The mm. director will often rewrite the script and not be credited for that, right? All the time, mm. working with the actors changes lines and so on and so forth. So I would, I would say it's an oversimplification to say that this film that was directed by a black woman was written by two white women. Because there's no doubt in my mind that 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 film was co-written by the black actresses in the film, Mm -hmm. um, of whom, you know, like, nothing's getting by um, them. Those those are strong black women, those actresses, and a black director, right? So nothing happens without her approval, right? And and I think it's, it's, um, we have to be very careful because messaging gets sort of inserted into our community, into black community um, on social media. My, my, my kids are so sick of hearing me say this, but you can look it up. Blacktivist, right? Which was a huge account on Twitter, on Facebook, um, was Russian operatives looking at racism in the United States and going, ooh, pandemic, this is a good way to divide people. We're going to mm. encourage black people to hate white people and white people to hate black people. It mm. was strategic, right? And mm. so I, I really like we have to be careful because I have seen it again and again and again in black filmmaker groups on Facebook, in quote unquote black filmmaker feeds on Twitter, because you see something in your list and you don't necessarily click on that person and look and see everything that they've posted. There are people in the black filmmaker communities or black film loving communities on Facebook who literally any black film that comes out, take it down six pegs. Every Mm. single black film that comes out, they're like, well, you know, this was a white writer. Well, you know, this was, you know, uh, uh, a white editor. Well, you know, this black person who made the film wasn't really in control because blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, I'm so sick of messages that, you know, um, show that black women and black men can't blah, 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 blah. And it's like, when you look at that person's profile and you realize like all they do is come on here to criticize black film and black filmmakers, they're Mm -hmm. sus to me, Yeah. right? So we have to be careful because what the way our brain works, and I know this because of advertising, right? The way our brain works is you plant a seed and it, it like comes back later. You can tell somebody a lie on social media and they'll look at it in that moment and go, that's definitely a lie. And then two weeks later, they'll say, I can't remember where I read this, but blah, 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 blah is true. Your brain play, will play tricks on you. So, so I just, I, I want to be really careful as a black filmmaker about criticizing a film that I haven't seen, first of all, but secondly, about criticizing a black female director as if she's not in charge of her own film. 
Now, no, maybe and, I'll and, see, no, but I'm saying maybe I'll see her film and I'll be like, you know, she made the wrong choice here. Right. I, I'm just but, saying, but check don't it out. disempower her. Don't. No, no, not at all. Not, say, not at all. Not right. at all. Okay. Not a, but okay. as a, as a man, as a black man yeah. watching that, it, it hurt. It, it, it hurt because, um, with the, with, with the way that the, 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 the black family, the, the, the turmoil that the black family is in, um, especially nowadays, um, to see but, but but isn't that the truth of the history of this particular group of black female warriors okay so i when i did my research on the dahomey tribe it didn't yes i didn't read that they selectively uh killed only men um but didn't I, they go to battle with men like against men and they were the fiercest men. fighters and yes. so they, so Amongst they did men, like well, as women, they, they bunches of men. They, they, well, okay. So they, uh, this particular, uh, squad or battalion, yes, they, they did have, uh, female generals, uh, warriors, female warriors. Mm -hmm. Um, and they would go into battle against men. Yes. But in the first scene, they're not in a battle. I, I believe they're raiding a village um they're raiding a village and they only allowed the women and the children to live and and so it it's it was a slaughter almost uh because they they were they were lethal there was a slaughter yeah. of 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 these men but then so you're so the thing that bugs you is not so much that it was women killing men it's that those families wound like why do you have to portray those families getting divided like that? And, and, and um, yeah, and, and almost huh. in a way where it's like now we're cheering for these black men being murdered by these black women, and the only thing to justify it was that uh, we know that maybe this village was uh, -huh. uh uh somehow in their way or they were they were against something that they enemies of them or something like that um yeah but there was no other reason and then when we when we do the research on the Dahomey um we we find that they were the large one of the largest contributors to the slave trade by by cap by the uh prisoners that they captured from the villages and selling them. So we didn't, but we didn't get to see that. But we just saw the murder of the men right. by the women. And, right. and my thing is we we have such a divide already that by show by showing this, even though it's a period piece, yeah, maybe we're planting a another seed by separating black men and black women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like they didn't have to start the movie like that. Yeah, I, I'd have to watch it to see if I think there's a reason for it. Um, but, but I will say, I think historical pieces in particular are messy. Um, mm -hmm. War is never, like, there is no way to portray war in my mind, right? Mm -hmm. that, um, that doesn't either alter the truth or just come across really horrifying on screen. Like the idea that somebody's killing anybody is a horrifying idea, right? right. 
um, and a traumatic idea. And so I, I think there is a challenge there because you want to show, I'm assuming, right, that the filmmaker wants to show that these women were just as fierce warriors as the men that we've seen on screen all these times, right? Whether it's Shaka Zulu, whether it's Braveheart, whether it, right? Like um, she's trying to show that they were capable of hand-to-hand combat it's, and it's a challenge, right? I, mm-hmm. I think, um, and I think the history of the Dahomey and the slave trade becomes this like even more of a dilemma in terms of like, how do you how do you tell this story? How do you tell this story of these amazing warriors? And they, to me, it seems like there are better stories to tell. Like we still haven't told Queen Nzinga's story, right? Mm. We held off the, the Portuguese um, in Angola for all those decades. And to the point where they're not sure in the history books if there were, I think one, two, or maybe even three Queen Nzinga's. <laughs> Because she held them off for so long. They're like, well, maybe this one was the daughter of the first one. Wow. Right? Because people's life expectancy was so small in those days. So, so yeah, it's interesting to, just as a, from a filmmaker perspective, from a storyteller perspective, to pick such a problematic story and to try and use it as a story of heroism. Right. That already seems challenging. Um, I, but I'll have to watch the movie and see what I think. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. Like films don't happen without drama. And so being strategic in terms of what drama you show and how do you tell either group, right? How do you tell black women do better? You know, I should say that different. I should say, how do you tell black women do better? And how do you tell black men do better, right? without showing what they've done wrong, whether that's cheating on each other, whether that's, you know, physically beating on each other, whether that, right? Like, I think that is a a challenge in storytelling um, because people do come to these movies with very personal agendas. They want people to see certain stories. They want um, people to be impacted, right? you know, it's become almost a trope at this point. Like when black women go to film school, they make movies about black hair. It's like, you know, okay, yes, that's an important subject, but you have to find your own spin on it. We can't keep telling the same story over and over again. Um, And so it, it, you're right. It, it becomes the same thing about the black family, right? We can't keep telling the same story again and again and again. We did good times. We did it. Yeah, we we get you it. Know, we get it. We get it. it. He died. Black men die. <laughs> Can we tell a different story now? No. So, CB, before we get out of here, um, what what are some uh, in your in your opinion, in, in a perfect world, what are some biographies uh, that should be made? People, stories mm-hmm. about people that should be made. Um. Besides yours. <laughs> no, my, my, my biography would be a book, not a movie. I don't think I, and I'm a real huge fan of biographical books. I've read Sidney Poitier's book and um, Lucille Ball's book and uh, the Goldwyn of Metro Goldwyn Mayer, his life story. And, you know, like I, I'm a big believer in reading biographies. Check um, out Pam so Beers sort of, when you get a chance. Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, yes. But, uh, 
uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of having a moment in terms of biographies. I think, um, I honestly don't know if schools still do what they did when I was a kid, right? Which is like put in a VHS tape <laughs> with mm -hmm. these black biographies, right? I think we need more stories about black scientists, not just mathematicians, but actual like the problem solving of science. Um, uh, you know, Ben Carson would have been a great movie, but uh, he kind of ruined his legacy. But um, they, they uh, I think Cuba Gooding played him. Oh, okay. There was one. Well, now in Cuba Gooding's legacy is kind of funky. Too, yeah. So, so maybe yeah. remake that one, but more fictionalized. I don't know. Um, but, but, but I think you know Ben Carson was more just a doctor who did a thing. But I mean that process of discovery. I, yeah. I would love to see more movies about that, about like black researchers who are Lewis you know Pascal. sort of struggling with a problem, yeah, but, you know, struggling with a problem and eventually figuring it out. You know, Madame Curie has a bunch of movies. Who's who's the black Madame Curie? I don't know. Um, right. Uh, I think also um, we are having a really healthy trend in terms of like, whether it's Malcolm X, whether it is um, uh, Fred Hampton, like, going back and making sure that we're making movies that show the history of black political figures mm -hmm. um, from our perspective. I do think about, I was saying this to somebody the other day, actually, I think, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was 14 when he started at Morehouse. Um, and I think a story about sort of young MLK could be good as long as they don't make it salacious, right? Um, nobody wants to see a movie about Martin Luther King cheating on his wife. Right. Nobody. Right. <laughs> so we don't want to see a version, you know, but to see this young kid like go to college and sort of struggle to succeed academically and know sort of the rest of his story, I think could make a cool movie. Um, I think um, a fictional version of sort of Shirley Chisholm's story could be kind of cool. They've done, you know, documentary and also like recreated the actual narrative, but I think a, a, a sort of, um, you know, interesting show about a woman who, a black woman who is running for president, maybe even wins, like could be kind of interesting mm. um, uh, to kind of prepare people. Like we did have like a good number of television shows and movies where there was a black male president and then we elected one, right? And so I feel like we kind of need that We've also had that for white female presidents, but we haven't had that for black female presidents. Interestingly um, enough, there, when we had the black male president, it was always some end of the world type shit, like some yeah. <laughs> some uh, nat some big natural disaster where aliens invading or twenty four. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think it did something to the psyche to sort of see that set up. Most definitely. Um, Suzanne DePass is an amazing person, black female producer, you know, um, Showtime at the Apollo was her show. I think it would be cool to have a biography of her. Yeah. Um, but maybe that's because I'm a film and television person and not because it would be interesting to a general audience. <laughs> um, and, and I think, I mean, I would just say in general, I think intersectionality is going to become more and more and more important, right? So is it June Jordan, who was the politician from Texas, who was at one point in a wheelchair, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
I have a really good friend who started this organization called Crip Hop Nation that's all about activism around being black and disabled and music around like they, they've started out putting out mixtapes of music made by black disabled musicians, but they also document a lot of the sort of history and hip hop of, of, and prior to hip hop, right. Of nice. um, artists, black artists with disabilities and intersectionality. We have, and they point this out all the time. Leroy Morris, the founder and Leroy points this out all the time. Like we see all these films about white disabled people. We never see films about black disabled people. And um damn that's true we never we never see films that address the sort of intersectionality of it according to his research somewhere between one half and two-thirds of all victims of police brutality have a disability whether that's they were deaf and the police said stop and they didn't stop whether that's a mental um health challenge whether that's um anxiety or autism you know something that just makes them kind of different and so the police are sort of freaked out because this person is kind of different um the the yeah so um i i would love to see a biography of somebody that is not like oh my god look at how amazing they are despite their disability that's Mm -hmm. that's more just like this is a person and they happen to have this situation and here's how they navigated it you know I, i would love to see that uh uh uh, either you know, either a biography or just a, a narrative about that. Um, I think Chasing Dion is like one of the few pieces that's actually had like a black lead with a disability. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that that's a long answer for your question about no, no. That's no, that's dope. And 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 you you have a point. Like it should be. It shouldn't. It doesn't have to be about this person. Uh, uh, exceptional despite their disability but just the fact that they're a human being um which is something that we've seen in other movies like uh the mat or uh mask was it mask mm-hmm. yep. uh, with rocky dennis um yep. um and and the movie with kevin hart and where he played a caretaker um can't remember that the name of that movie, but well, that movie is actually a remake of a very famous French movie. The French movie, I think, translates to The Untouchable, and it's a white savior story. Like literally, that's Bagger Vance all over again. Like uh... in the French version, you know, he's the magical Negro. He like serves the white man's storyline as well as serving the white man literally. And Kevin Hart is the same way. Like. I don't find that movie inspiring at all. I find that movie infuriating and depressing um, yeah. because, you know, we're, we're not servants anymore. Sorry. Yeah. Who <laughs> like, is this movie for? <laughs> Who is it yeah, for? Yeah. And, and also it's criminal to portray, like you were talking about like black men and women, right? Mm. But it, to me, it's criminal to portray black men in the service of um, white men's evolution. Yeah. Right. And that's what the magical Negro trope is over and over again. And that's certainly what both of those movies, the French version and the American version um, are. Um, I I much prefer Poirot. (laughs) Right. Which is the same actor from the French version, the series on Netflix. Right. Where it sort of takes the the. um, The crime solving. uh, type movie and turns it on its ear, right? So he's a criminal, but there's a reason he's a criminal. 
and um, and maybe he's not always as criminal as you think he is, right? Mm. But having said that, I wish Proro, I wish he had a black female love interest. Right. So right. I don't know if you saw Poirot, at, you know, on Netflix, but no, I haven't. I haven't. Yeah, they took sort of a series of French books, um, and and made that were about a white guy that was like the world's best criminal, right? Who's like steals diamonds from the museum and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Um, and they cast it with this North African actor whose name escapes me right now, but it's the same actor that's in that movie, The Untouchable. Um, okay. that the Kevin Hart movie is a remake of. Um, okay. And he's like a hero now. Like I was literally like in another country that was not France looking at street art and there was like street art of him. Um, Cause he's like this like dark African tall leading man who's an international star now, you know? And is sort That's of known for his, his shoe game. <laughs> <laughs> CB, thank you, thank you so much for coming through. I, I, we, we do have to do a part two because with 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 film, with television, um, especially with with the culture within the culture, there's so much to be talked about. Um, and and you you have a you have a point when it comes to um, diversity, um, inclusion. Um, we we are our own worst critics. Um, and I think it's at, at times it could be a good thing, but also at times it can it can uh, hold us back. Um, mm. But at the at the at the at the foundation of it all is stories that need to be told because there's yes. there's something in that that's going to help us to uh, evolve um, just as humans, uh, regardless of 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 color. Um, there's there's stories that we have to be a part of. Uh, whether it's telling them or hearing about them, watching them, reading about them, that are, are going to help us um, to 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 know where we're going because this is where we came from, kind of thing. Uh, we yeah. know what we're made of. So, yeah. thank you so much, CB. Is there anything that you have going on right now, or that people um, should know about? I, you know. I have a couple of fiction projects coming down the pipeline that I can't talk about yet. Okay, okay. Um, but just know that like, in addition to all the documentary work that I do and the industrial work that I do, um, you'll you'll be seeing some of my work in the, in the festival circuit. Um, and, you know, I, I will say just briefly, I, I have been a single mother for 20, 21 years, right? And so, mm. I did what I had to do to both stay making movies, but also to pay the bills and to raise my kids. Um, and now that they're grown, and, and you'll hear this story from lots of parents, right? Especially single parents, right? I get to sort of pivot back and do more of the work I love, um, not just the work that I do so that I can survive. And that's, that's like the best thing to, to be able to announce, right? Um, I'm so thankful to be at that place in my life. And, sh and shout out to your daughters. Shout out to you for raising <laughs> two beautiful, talented young adults. Um, yeah. We, I, and, I mean, and one of my daughters is at USC, and the other one is an up and coming chef. I am very proud of both creative, um, empathetic, thoughtful, beautiful young women. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I look forward to Thanksgiving dinners at your house. I know it's going to be <laughs> yeah. super dope. No raisins in the dressing, just no. real good, <laughs> real good cooking. <laughs> CB, thank you for thank joining you, us. And and um um everybody, CB does have a website. See, what it, can you tell us what the website is? There's two websites. So the first one is my personal website with more of my creative work and directing work. That's cbsmithdoll.com, all lowercase, all one word. And the second one is my production company. We've been doing diversity hiring for forever. So, um, you know, if you need some creatives that could be me or could be other amazing folks here in Oakland to come through and make a video project with you, with your team, um, check out togetherpictures.com togetherpictures.com yo thank you cb it was a pleasure and and anytime you want to plug something or have something come in that you can't talk about come on back through we'll plug it we'll discuss it chop it up and and everybody please go and check out cb's website check out some of her work check out the documentaries she has as well as the the um um the time lapse uh projects that she has and and shout out to your daughters. Um, good luck, you guys, in school. And I'll be talking to you very, very soon. Um, I know we're going to talk offline, but again, consider this a home away from home. You meet podcast as Sue podcast, like just <laughs> anytime. You're more than welcome. Thank you, Barry. No problem. All right, y'all. Till the next time. We'll see you later. Y'all have a good one. Remember uplift somebody, tell somebody you love them, put an arm around them, give them some knowledge, some guidance, because it's important to know we're not out here alone. Till the next time, we'll see you. Peace.